I would argue the U.S. isn't losing in places like Libya and Syria so much as we're simply refusing to show up. It is the week of June 8th, and welcome to Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. I'm Lester Munson, Senior Fellow at NSI. Today, we'll be doing a deep dive with Jennifer Caffarella, NSI Visiting Fellow and the National Security Fellow at the Institute for the Study of War. Recently, she testified before the House Subcommittee on the Middle East, North Africa, and International Terrorism on the crisis in Idlib. There have been many developments in the situation in Syria and Libya since then, and we wanted to have her on to talk us through those developments. Jenny, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Your testimony was in early March, in person, as far as I can tell, before the quarantine happened. That must seem like a lifetime ago. It does indeed. Yeah, it was about the the last in-person event I was able actually to undertake before the pandemic took hold. Catch us up to speed then, if you don't mind. What was the situation in Idlib as you talked about it three months ago, and where do we stand today? Three months ago, we had just reached a de-escalation agreement between Turkey and Russia after a major round of fighting in northwestern Syria that actually had a pretty high risk of a major conflict between a NATO ally, Turkey, and Russia. Russia had launched an offensive against a part of northwestern Syria, Idlib province, that is of core concern to Turkey. That Russian offensive had provoked the largest Turkish intervention in Syria to date. Turkey deployed roughly a division of the Turkish armed forces to block further gains by Russia, the Assad regime, and Iran, and force the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, into a de-escalation agreement. That was a positive outcome, given that it did end the largest of the hostilities in Idlib province. However, it did not address many of the underlying challenges, including the unsustainable humanitarian crisis in Idlib, as well as the underlying friction between Turkey and Russia, which continues to create a risk of a resumption, a breakdown of that Idlib ceasefire agreement and a resumption of hostilities, which unfortunately now in June, we're starting to see warning signs of. Characterize the relationship between President Trump's decision to pull U.S. forces back from the border the Syrian-Turkish border, and the situation in Idlib? Is one the direct result of the other, or are these separate events? These events are a bit separate because the Syrian civil war has basically devolved into different sub-theaters, where you have the war in the Northwest, separate in large measure from the war in the South, separate again in large measure from the conflict in the Northeast. Now, President Trump's decision to allow Turkey to intervene in the Northeast did further destabilize that area. It also created an opportunity for Russia and the Assad regime to play a greater role in the Northeast, which has actually started to link the war in the West, where the U.S. is not a major actor, with our position in the Northeast, which is increasingly contested and, in my view, untenable in the long run. And what's the humanitarian situation for the Syrian Kurdish population now that the U.S. pullback has happened and the situation in Idlib is heating up again? So the outcome in the Northeast is actually in some ways better now that Turkey and Russia are focused elsewhere. And what I mean by that is the Turkish deployment of roughly a division of the Turkish armed forces to Idlib basically redirected the Turkish military force that would have been necessary to conduct another round of fighting in the Northeast. So those Kurdish populations did suffer what amounted to an ethnic cleansing along portions of the border late last year. That's unacceptable in my view, and it is creating enduring tensions between the Kurdish population and its fighting force and Turkey. 
that's a problem. It is still kinetic as we are seeing attacks by our Kurdish partnered force against Turkish forces and their proxies in areas that were seized and ethnically cleansed. But thus far, thankfully, the Turks have not been able to resume their military operations in the Northeast, which means there is still a possibility for some kind of a negotiated deal, some kind of more permanent de-escalation, although unfortunately the U.S. hasn't quite been involved enough to make that likely. Now, the U.S. still has forces on the ground in Syria. They're just positioned differently than they were 12 months ago. Can you talk a little bit about where the U.S. is and what its mission is? The Defense Department will still frame the mission as largely the same. We are there to help stabilize the Northeast and to work with our local partner to counter ISIS. However, in reality, we've suffered quite a few setbacks including we're not able to operate physically in areas that we previously did operate that are crucial to the anti-ISIS fight, including Manbij, as well as Raqqa City, which was, of course, the ISIS de facto capital in Syria. Instead, the U.S. is doing a much more limited set of operations, including conducting joint patrols with our Kurdish partners to basically assert presence and to try to contain the operations of the Russians and the Assad regime, although that's not going terribly well. And then second, we are conducting continued partnered operations with the Syrian Democratic Forces, the broader coalition of Kurdish and Arab fighters against ISIS. Those raids are relatively infrequent. They're not enough to completely end the ISIS insurgency, but they are having an important disruptive effect, preventing ISIS from recovering as fast as it would without that U.S. presence. If I were a sharp-eyed uh, critic, I would I, I would read between the lines of your last couple sentences and say, so ISIS is on the rise. It's just not rising as fast as it otherwise would. Can you flesh out a little bit more about what's the status for ISIS in Syria in particular? Are they better off? Are they worse off? Have they gained any territory? What's the difference between now and before the U.S. pulled back from the border? So ISIS is recovering from its territorial losses. I think it's important to recall that ISIS was never fully defeated in Syria because it never operated in areas exclusive to where coalition forces are operating. Said differently, ISIS has remained present and active in regime-held parts of Syria that were beyond the reach of coalition forces. That latent presence outside of our reach helped ISIS stimulate a resurgence. And ISIS was aided by the Turkish invasion and the U.S. decision to draw back, which created a security gap and an opportunity for ISIS to exploit. Now, thankfully, that ISIS exploitation hasn't been as bad as we actually feared. There was the potential, for example, that ISIS would conduct prison break operations to free detained fighters or launch some other kind of blitz offensive. That hasn't occurred. In large measure, that's a result of the fact that the Turkish incursion did halt and we did not witness a widening direct military conflict in the Northeast after about November of 2019. And then secondly, the coalition has sustained some military presence, which again is eliminating key nodes and leaders, disrupting the insurgency. That said, the momentum we are watching ISIS gain is dangerous, and particularly in central Syria and areas of the Middle Eastern Euphrates River Valley, which is under the control of our local partner. In central Syria, ISIS has begun temporarily seizing control of small villages and the outskirts of other urban centers, which is a dangerous sign, both of its capability as well as its continued intent to take physical control of terrain. What we're seeing in areas under the SDF's control is not quite as bad, 
but does include a lot of warning signs. For example, ISIS forcing local farmers to pay its religious tax, sending out leaflets demanding repentance, conducting raids in towns that are ostensibly under our control to conduct kidnapping and executions, etc. So it's definitely concerning and needs greater pressure than the U.S. military is able to apply under these current conditions. But as I've said, thankfully, it hasn't been quite as bad as we feared. So we do still have time to correct course in the East. My interpretation of U.S. policy over the years, to the extent you can see similarities between Trump and Obama, is that our primary objective in being in Syria is to thwart ISIS. That doesn't seem to be the top priority of Turkey or Russia. Can you talk about what it is Turkey and Russia are trying to achieve in Syria? Sure. I would agree there's been a continuation essentially of large aspects of the Obama administration policy by the Trump administration. I would argue that our main priority in this region has been and remains to get out and to fight ISIS only as long as is necessary in order to get out and not have to do this kind of thing anymore. Um, Conversely, the Russians and the Turks and the Iranians are very much in this for the long haul. They're competing for regional and broader strategic basing positioning, access, influence, and resources that they can use to support other wars. So the Russians want a permanent presence on the Eastern Mediterranean that they can use and are already using to project force into Africa. We'll talk about Libya in a moment, but they're also supporting broader operations deeper into Africa from that base in Syria. Unfortunately, the U.S. policy has been so fixated on getting out by way of fighting ISIS that we've missed opportunities to maintain and expand our own leverage. But we're also failing to apply constraints on actors such as Russia and Iran early enough to block their expansion before it becomes disproportionately costly to actually try to roll back. And I think in some ways what we're watching right now with the Trump administration's policy against Iran is an ex post facto attempt to roll back that Iranian build out that had been allowed starting under the Obama administration. And I'm concerned we're actually setting ourselves up for a similar parallel, of course, different in many respects but a similar parallel nonetheless with Russia. Let's talk about Turkey and Russia generally. In Washington, we see and are fixated on Turkey buying the S-400 missile defense system from Russia and the problems that poses for the NATO military alliance. And that is a deal breaker in the U.S.-Turkey relationship for a lot of key folks, thinking of a few senators in key positions. It's clearly a problem between the Turkey and the U.S. Contextualize that issue. You've got Turkey and Russia collaborating on arms sales. You've got them at each other's throats in Syria. And later on, we'll talk about what they're doing in Libya. What's the relationship between these two emerging regional powers? I would argue that Turkey and Russia are strategically aligned, primarily out of a shared desire to constrain the United States. But they're actually operationally at war, now in two theaters. They're on opposite sides of the war in Syria, and they have come to blows militarily directly more than once, most recently during their confrontation in Idlib earlier this year. And they are now also on opposite sides of the war in Libya. This creates a very tense and dynamic back and forth between Turkey and Russia, where each is using military power to assert leverage over the other, but they both prioritize returning to negotiations and attempting to de-escalate as much as possible in order to preserve that strategic alignment. What that means is the Russo-Turkish alignment that is so threatening to the United States and NATO is actually far more fragile under the surface than it appears. I agree that it is a 
unacceptable policy for Erdogan to have purchased the S-400 and to intend to bring it online. I think that's a fair no-go for the U.S., and I hope we continue to put pressure on him. But I think the U.S. has missed opportunities, actually, to shape Turkey's behavior and to drive a bigger wedge between Turkey and Russia because our policy remains so sort of surface level and we don't want to get involved in this war that they're fighting. And thus we lose leverage and we give Russia the continued opportunity to align strategically with Turkey, despite the fact that operationally Turkey's acting in NATO's interest in some ways in Syria by blocking what the Russians are trying to do. So if you had to pick uh, Russia or Turkey, which country is the Trump administration favoring more overall in its policy right now, Turkey or Russia? That's a great question. I would argue Turkey, perhaps a bit controversially. Uh, the Trump administration and President Trump himself has said a lot of things about Russia, actually about both leaders, but about Russia. Although on the whole, the U.S. has actually strengthened our economic pressure on Putin's regime. And we have done very important things to disrupt some of his operations abroad, including in Europe. And I think that that is a weird torque within this administration between rhetoric and actual policy that is in some ways characteristic of how President Trump conducts his foreign policy. Whereas on Turkey, we haven't seen the same pressure. Now, we shouldn't see the same pressure necessarily because they are a NATO ally and they are not a malign actor to the scale that Russia is. But we have seen important examples, for instance, the threat of sanctions for Turkey's detention of Pastor Brunson and other examples of the U.S. actually using hard power to compel changes in Erdogan's behavior. I think those are good examples. And I think in many ways reflect the same kind of great power politics that Putin so excels at in manipulating Erdogan into his favorable outcomes. And I wish we would see more of that from the Trump administration. Thus far, unfortunately, our approach to Turkey has been sporadic and I think defined in large measure by our willingness to back down at Turkey's intervention in the Northeast. Although, as you rightly noted, there is still pressure from Congress. This administration isn't doing much against Turkey, but Congress certainly is. And I do think that will continue to shape America's policy more broadly in this region. What I hope is that we can find ways to get these policies to align to create actual outcomes in theaters like Syria. If you had to assess the partisan in the fight in Syria who has benefited the most in the last few months, is it the United States? Is it ISIS? Is it Russia, Turkey, or is it Assad? Who's coming out on top more so than they were six months ago? So I would actually argue a dark horse, which is Al-Qaeda, which gets left out of this discussion quite a bit. They are suffering setbacks because their primary area of control and support is in Idlib, which is now under threat. And they're starting to experience even popular protests against the Al-Qaeda project, which is a setback. But overall, the deepening state collapse that we're watching across Syria, which includes a devastating financial collapse in the areas under the Assad regime's control. That broadening collapse of the Syrian war is a huge opportunity for al-Qaeda. It's also an opportunity for ISIS, and I'd say they're in a close second in terms of benefiting from the situation. But the ISIS brand is tarnished by its defeats as well as its extremism in ways that the al-Qaeda brand is not tarnished. And I therefore am quite concerned at the continued gap in America's policy towards Syria regarding al-Qaeda and the risks that if it succeeds at burrowing itself into Syrian society, 
we could face a dramatic rise in the scale of attacks that Al-Qaeda can conduct from Syria. So it's not making headlines, and that's exactly why I'd put it forward as the most dangerous uh, actor benefiting from the situation. What is the status of Assad at this point? Is he doing better? Is there any chance he's on the outs after you know, years of catastrophic rule. Is his rule as small as it's gotten? Is it under threat right now? Or is he looking forward to better days? So Assad's approach to winning the war has always been to be king of the ashes, right? His slogan is Assad or I burn the country. And he did that. What he is now facing, however, is the crumbling of the regime held areas which is a contingency I don't think, candidly, he fully expected. He expected to destroy the rest of the country and basically compel not only Syria's population to accept him, but also the broader international community. Neither of those things has happened. The Syrian population has not relented. We're seeing, for example, renewed popular protests and insurgent attacks in areas that Assad had recaptured with Russian and Iranian help. And we are now seeing a significant degradation in the security and stability in regime-held areas due to a financial collapse, which has been in large measure a secondary consequence of the collapse in Lebanon, but is also a result of basically a failed gamble by Russia and the Assad regime that if they won the war, so to speak, if they gained enough military leverage on the ground, then the international community would bankroll Assad's recovery and the rebuilding of core areas that he has recaptured. That hasn't happened. The international community has refused to accept Assad, his war crimes, and those of his backers, and have not provided basically any reconstruction funds, which means Assad now has a very big problem. So do his backers, which were hoping to benefit financially to recover some of their investment once European and potentially American money started flowing in. It seems like a pretty bad misread of the West if the Russians and Assad were thinking that Washington and London and Paris would sign off on assistance to Assad. It certainly was a gamble, but I think it was a good one at the time when this was the main push happened in 2018. And European capitals were starting to signal that perhaps the most humanitarian thing to do was just to accept Assad and Mm -hmm. to support his reconstruction and The Russians made a clever play, which was to offer support resettling refugees back into Syria if European states would accept Assad and support reconstruction. Thankfully, American pressure in part contributed to European states actually holding the line. But Assad helped spoil that initiative, essentially, by continuing to conduct mass arrests, tortures, and all measure of war crimes against his own population. All right, let's shift a thousand miles to the west to Libya. It's been almost a decade since Muammar Gaddafi was killed. Libya is in chaos today. The Libyan people are leaving in droves. If they can get out, they're getting out. What's happening on the ground right now in Libya? Unfortunately, what we've watched in Libya since the revolution against Gaddafi is a slow slide into further fragmentation and civil war. That civil war is in many ways beginning to follow the trajectory of Syria with a growing internationalization that does not make a negotiated settlement more likely, but actually drives an escalation of the conflict and makes a diplomatic settlement more difficult to achieve, given the competing interests of all sides of this conflict. Right now, the major confrontation is between the internationally recognized Government of National Accord, or GNA, and its opposition, essentially, led by one of Gaddafi's most senior generals, a guy named Haftar, who has received support from Russia and the UAE. The GNA, on the other side, is 
as I mentioned, recognized by the UN and is receiving the most military support from Turkey. So what we've watched as the GNA and Heftar's Libyan National Army have engaged in a protracted conflict is Turkey and Russia intervening on opposite sides of that conflict, both attempting to achieve a decisive military advantage, but thus far failing to do that. Now, I should note that the actor with the upper hand right now, as of June 2020, is Turkey, which has managed to force Russia onto the defensive across the Mediterranean this year, starting in Syria by compelling Putin into that de-escalation agreement, and now in Libya. So what is U.S. policy in Libya? There was some talk in town about a year ago that Trump might be looking to support Haftar. He was saying some nice things about him. It sounded like Haftar and his guys were getting entree into the White House. What's the position of the U.S. president on Libya right now? I can't speculate what the position of the president is. Unfortunately, it seems to change so fast that I'm sure even his advisors have a bit of a difficult time keeping up. What we know is that the U.S., is prioritizing, according to the State Department, the U.S. goal is a ceasefire, of course, and an end to the conflict. Now, the U.S. has been engaging in trying to negotiate a settlement, and it is in that context that the Trump administration started making positive comments about Heftar. Perhaps we need to bring him into the government. Perhaps he needs a senior role, et cetera, in order to find a way, essentially, to create an accommodation and possibly attempting to incentivize Russia to play a constructive role in a diplomatic settlement. Now, I think attempting to entice Russia into playing a constructive role is essentially always a bad approach, given that Russia's interests are explicitly against America's. However, in this case, it's a bit of a moot point anyway, because we haven't been involved enough actually to meaningfully affect those negotiations, which seeded the opportunity for both Turkey and Russia to intervene to scale up their military involvement. Does the U.S. have any interests in Libya aside from stability? What are Is there any other economic issues at stake for us, humanitarian issues at stake? What are we concerned about in Libya beyond just stability? Sure. I would argue that stability is the condition that enables us to achieve our interests, which include preventing a resurgence of jihadist threats, including ISIS and al-Qaeda-affiliated actors. Stability also inherently requires addressing the underlying humanitarian crisis in Libya, which includes not only Libya's own internally displaced throughout the course of the war, but also broader African migrants, given that a lot of the migrant routes actually pass through Libya up into the Mediterranean. And then we do have a broader interest in setting stability in Libya in order to support its neighbors, to support Egypt, which of course is a longstanding U.S. partner, but with whom we've had a complicated relationship since Sisi's regime overthrew um, the elected government, and in Tunisia, where we're actually seeing increased U.S. focus on how do we create enough resilience inside of Tunisia to prevent the possibility for overflow of the, the Libyan civil war. But we also have a broader interest in denying Libya as a new base for the Russians in the Mediterranean. And I think this aspect of it is increasingly on the Trump administration's radar, but still not quite enough. The Russians seek another naval base in Libya to complement the one that they have in Syria. Russia's goal is to broaden its naval force posture in the Mediterranean in ways that position Russia to disrupt NATO's freedom of movement, which creates leverage for Russia that is not limited to Libya, Syria, or even the Mediterranean, but is actually, in fact, a global kind of leverage that the Russians can and will use in order to make demands or advance their interests in other theaters such as Europe. 
So the U.S., we remain the world's only superpower, really. China may be on the move, but we're still uh, king of the hill, at least for a while. We've got all kinds of capabilities across the foreign policy and national security spectrum. What tools is the U.S. using to help bring about a successful resolution of the conflict in Libya? Very few. And I would say that is emblematic of the Trump administration's approach overall. This administration is skeptical of an American role abroad and is across the board attempting actually to scale back America's military investment across the Middle East, but also simply to do less and to outsource some of these requirements to partners. I think there's a good and constructive debate to be had about what we should demand of our partners and how the U.S. should balance what we're doing within broader coalitions. But unfortunately, in this case, both in Libya, but also in the Middle East more broadly, the Trump administration has really focused only on rhetoric and making bold statements and then sanctions as an economic tool. And we haven't really seen them do much else. They're scaling back humanitarian assistance even, which is an important source of not only life-saving aid to local populations, but also, you know, an important form of American influence. And we're just not seeing that kind of interest in engaging. So I would argue the U.S. isn't losing in places like Libya and Syria so much as we're simply refusing to show up. We have a stake in this fight, but we're not acting like it. And therefore, we're ceding opportunities to our adversaries. And it looks like the U.S. is unable to compete, when in reality, we're not even attempting to. And I think that's a very important source of clarity that we need in the debate for what's going on abroad and what should the U.S. be doing. Because the waters started getting muddied actually under the Obama administration, which was likewise skeptical of a U.S. role, but made a different argument. They made the argument that the U.S. essentially does more harm than good, that we shouldn't be involved in these wars, that we need to get out and hand it over to local partners. It's not quite the same thing that the Trump administration is doing, but the effect is similar. I think it's causing confusion in many respects for what the U.S. could do if we actually brought the elements of our national power to bear. So I think it's a really important question. And I think we need to keep that aperture pretty wide for evaluating what we're not doing, but could if we so chose. So I think your distinction between Obama and Trump is pretty accurate and very relevant. When I think about President Obama's approach towards the Middle East generally, and I'm thinking mostly of his second term in the Iran deal, not Libya per se, but the Iran deal, uh, in order to facilitate the withdrawal of U the U.S. generally from the Middle East, the positive interpretation of what President Obama was doing is that he was creating a balance of power in the Middle East, like a concert of the Middle East that would be sustainable without direct U.S. involvement. You'd balance Saudi Arabia against Iran or something like that. I think the downside of that is you kind of let Iran run amok in the region, and which is terrible for U.S. interests. But there was at least a logic to the approach that was encapsulated in the Iran nuclear deal. With the current administration, it seems like it's simply just to not be involved. There seems to be no coherent thought process about what gets left behind if the U.S. withdraws. And maybe the net effect is the same in that chaos is unleashed and bad actors start to do bad things. But it seems like there's even less of a plan than there was during the Obama administration. Is that your sense or do you disagree? I think it's a fair point, although I would reframe slightly to say the Obama administration certainly had a much more coherent and well-articulated narrative justifying their policy. 
it is not my view that the Obama administration's policy was actually to create a balance of power in the Middle East. Obama administration officials may have believed that that's what they're doing, but the policy did not amount to actually creating that effect. And it couldn't have if you actually look at the details of the on the ground situation in the region. Fast forward to the Trump administration, there's less coherent strategic messaging out of this administration. That's another one of its hallmarks. It's a bit more disorganized, but it's also candidly not trying to pitch a justification for the policy in quite the same way. In some respects, in my personal view, it's a better thing because it's less distracting and it doesn't bog us down in a hypothetical discussion over a, you know, wishful policy outcome. And that does let us actually just focus on the reality on the ground. Now, I would say the exception in some respects is the Trump administration's counter-Iran policy, which has been a little bit more coherent in its articulation, but still largely just amounts to push them hard, take the money, you know, hold them accountable for their malign activity in the region. And there's not really, at least to the extent that I've been able to observe, a coherent articulation of what positive outcomes we're trying to achieve, aside from reigning in Iran as a sort of amorphous concept. Let's talk about something that is a Trump priority, which, at least according to him, is he wants to fight ISIS and he wants to crush them, not just decimate them, but destroy them. He wants to fight al-Qaeda. How are ISIS and al-Qaeda doing in Libya right now? So they will always exploit vacuums to recover. That's as true in Libya as anywhere else. Thus far, fortunately, they have not experienced what I would call a breakout success in Libya. We do have continued clandestine operations by both actors. They also have essentially freedom of movement in the largely ungoverned and desert south of Libya, where all sorts of migrant routes and drug trafficking routes and other forms of criminality sort of pass through as a uh, crossroads in the broader North African networks that do stretch farther west as well as south. So they're certainly there. They haven't yet tried to conduct a major offensive or to gain territorial control which is a positive thing, but it's a dangerous thing in some other respects, which means their focus right now is exploiting that freedom of operation. And we are watching a very dangerous surge by both ISIS and Al-Qaeda farther west in the Sahel, which does in many ways connect back to what's happening in Libya, although not quite as a sort of direct one-to-one. It's part of the broader threat picture in North Africa, which is the lens that the U.S. should be using to evaluate the risks in Libya. So if the U.S. wanted to do more to thwart al-Qaeda and ISIS in Libya, would it help the GNA or General Haftar? Well, I would personally advocate for supporting the GNA, but to seriously attempt to broker a negotiated settlement. Now, as we know, military operations are supposed to support a political outcome. That's as true in Libya as in any other conflict where the U.S. has or hasn't been involved. So I don't think these are mutually exclusive things. I do think additional military pressure, for example, on Haftar may be necessary in order to compel him to accept some kind of ceasefire. I think that's the lens in which Turkey is intervening. And I think that's appropriate in many respects. But the risk we face if we allow Turkey to continue to drive the GNA's response and the GNA's diplomatic approach is we're losing the ability to shape this ourselves. And we should not trust Erdogan to get it right. As we've mentioned, Erdogan has a lot of issues with the United States and we should not simply give him this one. But furthermore, I think the U.S. risks allowing a deepening merger between the war in Libya and the war in Syria, which will not only fuel a widening Mediterranean conflict, 
but also, again, make it more and more difficult for the U.S. to roll this back. It has been our goal for many years now in Libya to contain the escalation, to set conditions to de-escalate, and to prevent further internationalization of the conflict. And we failed to do that. So simply stepping in with appeals for a ceasefire is not going to be sufficient. That actually is screaming into the void in Libya almost as much as it is screaming into the void in Syria if the U.S. is not actually acting to gain and assert leverage over the parties involved. So last question, if we pull back a little bit and look at the whole North Africa, Middle East region, and as you say, these civil wars in Syria and Libya are starting to resemble each other, same actors, same dynamics on the ground, maybe feeding on each other. What's next? Where should we look for this instability to spill out uh, to maybe a third country or another region? Or what's the next front in this war on chaos? Sure. So I would offer potentially two. The first is the Mediterranean itself, where one of the reasons for Turkey's intervention in Libya in an assertive way starting in late 2019 was actually about gas exploration in the Mediterranean, where the Turks have a stake and are at odds with Greece and Israel. Right now, this is sort of a a secondary story or in the background of the war in Libya, but is actually a very high strategic priority for Turkey and is an arena where you could actually watch the Russians start to try to shape that economic situation, as well as the geopolitics that are involved in each of these actors trying to assert their claims in disputed areas in the Mediterranean. So I think that's one area to watch. A second area to watch is, as I mentioned a moment ago, West Africa more broadly. The U.S. is scaling back our involvement in Africa um, as part of our desire to reposition for great power conflict, which means something different depending on who you're talking to. But what we know is that jihadist groups, unfortunately, are gaining significant steam. I do think that that creates not only the risk of attacks against the American homeland, as well as the devastation of local populations that suffer under these groups, but also widening vacuums that our great power rivals, Russia and China, are excelling at stepping into. We're watching that across the African continent, where both Russia and China have been making important strategic investments. And the farther the U.S. pulls back, the more opportunity they have to step in. Great stuff. Jenny, thanks for doing the podcast this week. We really appreciate it. It was uh, fantastic topics, and I think we could go on for probably a couple hours. Uh, Sorry to cut it off at this point. I think we probably could. Not a worry. It's been my pleasure, and I hope to join again soon. All right. That's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi at gmu.edu or tweet us at MasonNatSec. If you like what we are doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing and our producer and director Grant Haver for all of his terrific assistance. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines.